Grace. Um, so what are, what are some of your other uh, memories of, of different shows? So that was the first one. Uh, well, I'll tell you, on uh, 1997, maybe the Load Tour, I'm not sure, when I was getting ready to graduate high school or I had just graduated high school, I went to see them uh, down at uh, – the Verizon Amphitheater thing there in Indianapolis it used to be called Deer Creek. I'm sure you sure. remember that. Yeah. And, been there, um, been there many times, seen Metallica yeah. there <laughs> many times. Yeah. We've probably been at the same show and didn't even know it. Before. Yeah. But, uh, I went there did you, and did, were you well, at, uh, Metallica Danzig and suicidal there? Oh yes, I was. And I, I was still there. have, I, I still have too. the tie dyed, the tie dyed bootleg shirt. My dad bought <laughs> off some guy in the parking lot. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, ships I, passing I, in the night. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So I just remember at that one on the load tour, I believe it was, I went with my friend, my other friend, Chris, another Chris, I know a lot of Chris's, <laughs> and we were kind of hanging out, walking around, and they had, all these people were gathering over at this one side of the amphitheater, and there was like a little awning, and we didn't know what it was, so this band hadn't started yet, it was fairly early, we got there super early, because a friend of ours actually worked security at, at Deer Creek. So we got in early and there wasn't, I mean, there was maybe 50 people in the entire place. We were probably two or three hours early and they were doing a raffle with fan club members to have a meet and greet. And I don't know, like, I know now they do the hardwired experience and you pay money and you can meet them or whatever. But at this point, I guess they were just doing some kind of, some kind of raffle and they, all these people did it and we weren't in the fan club. I didn't pay any money or anything. So we were just standing there watching, drinking a Coke and nobody like won the raffle. Like they kept calling the number and they call like four or five numbers and like nobody said that they won. So everybody just kind of walked away. And I went up and I said, I'll take the prize. Cause I think it was like even Deer Creek employees. Like, I don't think it was like an official thing. Uh -huh. I still don't really know even the logistics of it, but uh, they ended up letting me and my friend Chris backstage and we got to meet Jason and James. Oh, wow. Wow. And we got to talk to them for probably 15, 20 minutes. I mean, we were in this little tiny room, and I talked to James about my band at the time. I was in that punk band <laughs> called, called Chronic Chaos, and he goes, what's the name? he goes, what's the name of your band? And I said, Chronic Chaos. And he goes, ah, oh, sounds like a punk band. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. like, Jason, Jason was super cool, and, and they just – they couldn't have been any nicer. And I could see, I could see Chronic Chaos on a flyer with spastic children. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But we didn't get to take pictures or anything because, I mean, you got to think, it's 97. I didn't have a sure. camera phone. Sure. And I, I didn't bring a camera because I didn't think I was going to need a camera. Or, yeah. But I did get, uh, like, a little 8 by 10 like, glossy of the band, and James and Jason signed it. So That's sick. Do you still have that? Um, I've moved quite a bit. The last time I saw it, it was at my mom's, but it's in a nice little binder. So yes, but I don't know where it's at exactly. <laughs> yeah. You got to get that shit and get it framed, son. Yeah, I know. I had it framed for a while, but man, it's just, it's in storage right now. So yeah. Well, at least it survived. Through the yeah. Ages. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, you know, it's funny talking about, uh, Deer Creek Amphitheater and, uh, the late nineties, uh, burn it down actually quote unquote opened for metallica deer creek <laughs> wow that's awesome man it was uh metallica and days of the new was the tour remember that band i was on that too i went to that show as well uh yeah so that was um yeah days of the new was that well because travis meeks was from travis indiana. meeks yeah 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 he was yeah. Like a southern indiana louisville guy um i saw him on a rerun of intervention the other day like, oh wow I'm yeah. kind of hoping he's okay. <laughs> and they were the band, like, every record was self-titled, but it was, like, a different color. So yeah, like yeah, yeah. album or whatever. Yeah, I want to say this was 1999, was that show? Um, but, yeah, so Sounds basically, right. I don't know if you remember, but where you were, it was such a bizarre thing. Um, when you were walking into the amphitheater, and, you know, of course, like any amphitheater, there's a super long walk from, like, the gates to... The seats or even the lawn, uh, you know, let alone like the orchestra pit and whatever. Um, there was a little booth, basically, like a, a little wooden platform that was maybe, you know, two feet tall, maybe. Okay. Um, that was, you know, just set up in the walkway. <laughs> and they would have local bands uh, 
perform on that little platform as like entertainment for people as they're walking through the gate <laughs> and walking <laughs> that's pr- that's to pretty go great, get their man. beer and their pretzel and then go get, you know. Um, and of course, you know, for the entirety of our career, we would say, uh, you know, yeah, we've opened for Dillinger Escape Plan and In Flames and Metallica. Like we just you know, <laughs> throw that in there. But it was to call it opening is, is such a stretch. I mean, we were in the same venue on the same day. Yeah. <laughs> and we played at, you know, 5 p.m. or something. But um, the interesting thing was is they gave us uh, a time, like it was, like they basically demanded that we play, they, of course, being the local promoters, I bet, you know, the Metallic organization had no idea we were there. They probably didn't even know that local bands were put on. But um, I don't know if it was 90 minutes, 60 minutes, whatever it was, at the time, we had, I believe, six or seven songs and a cover. Um, and these were like, you know, noise core songs. So a lot of our songs <laughs> in that era were, you know, two minutes maybe. Yeah. So we played the same set over and over and over for an hour or whatever it was as people, you know, filed past and a, a few stopped and watched us and, and then carried on their way. Yeah, it was pretty I mean- silly. I don't. I don't remember seeing you guys, but oh, I'm sure I was. You don't. <laughs> I was. I was into a lot of underground stuff. So if I would have saw it, I probably would have hung out. <laughs> yeah, you may have walked into it through a different entrance. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Man. Yeah. I, I always had friends. Actually, here's a funny story about Metallica. I didn't even think about this. It could have been that show when I, after I graduated. Uh, I, I, mean, I think it was probably '99 or maybe '98. I was home from college in the summertime, and you know you got to get a job in the summertime. And my band wasn't quite touring full time at that point. We we're doing weekend warrior stuff, so I thought, what kind of job am I going to get? And I said, oh crap, Metallica's coming to Deer Creek, and it's sold out already. What am I going to do? I know I'm going to get a security guard job so I can see Metallica. <laughs> Nice. So what I what I did was I worked a bunch of crappy stuff like I worked like the Eagles and, and and whatever else. And then when Metallica was coming up, we had this big meeting with all the security guys and they said, it's mandatory. You can't miss it and, and you can't like really watch. You have to be, you know, do your job. I know it's Metallica. So I basically got there, clocked in, clocked out, took my uniform off and just watched Metallica and never went back to work. <laughs> And that that definitely qualifies as one of the better stories I've heard. So yeah, I just I basically I did a bunch of crappy concerts because I knew that Metallica was coming at the end of the summer, the middle of the summer, and I knew I couldn't get tickets to it. So I said, man, screw this. I and I clocked in so it looked like I was working. And as soon as I was as soon as I was in and they couldn't do anything about it, I took my uniform off, clocked out, and I I think I hid in the bathroom until doors opened. That's so awesome. Because I didn't so, want to miss them, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, it works. Hey, do what you got to do. They're still getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that's so great. Uh, so any other uh, fun stories? Well, I tell you, there's a couple cool things. Um, back in 2008 or 2009, I can't remember the year, we were supposed to go play Sonosphere over in the UK with Metallica and a bunch of other bands. And... Um, <clears throat> Something, I don't even remember what happened, but for some reason we couldn't go. I think it was some family emergency or something with the band. But I remember that uh, I was super bummed because I knew I probably wouldn't get to hang out with him or anything, but we were going to play a festival with Metallic. It was like the biggest thing in my entire life. And I was watching probably a month or two later on the Palladium channel or MTV2. I can't remember which one it was, but they were interviewing people from Sonosphere. And at first I was very, very bummed out because, you know, we didn't go. (laughs) And uh, then they were interviewing Kirk and right behind Kirk is a poster and it had a big Atari's logo on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And I used to have a picture of it and I like, I posted it. I was so stoked. I'm like, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to Kirk. It's got my band's name right behind his head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it w- was that the 2010 Sonosphere with the big four? I'm not sure which what year it was. I just know that it was – I want to say it was 09, but maybe it was 2010. I can't remember. Yeah, because I think they played 09 also. 2010 was the big, was the big four. That's oh, it, the, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the big four, so it must have been the year before. Um, oh, that's so awesome. I love that you had that photo. That's totally something I would do. I mean, I just I, – I paused the TV, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like – 
this is insane. Like, maybe he's actually heard of the band I was in. <laughs> yeah, it's written on the wall behind him. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, just stuff like that. Like, they've always just been such a big part of my life that any time – like, I remember one of the things was we, we told, you know, the, the promoter when we booked that, and then we didn't end up going. But I remember we told him, like, like the only way we'll play is if we can be side stage for Metallica, and he kind of laughed at us. Like, we didn't have any – we didn't have anything we couldn't say that we were just being funny <laughs> but i don't know it's just they're the best band in the world they're why i play guitar like when i write a song it might not be metal or it might be metal but the way i look at it and approach it is because of I, how i learned to play with you know major and minor thirds and different intervals that i learned from watching james play and it's they're just when when you wanted me to be on the show it freaked me out because i i don't think i can with words totally make you grasp how I feel about the band. <laughs> oh, I can feel it. And I know, <laughs> um, what are, you know, you mentioned, uh, you and Chris Rowe getting together and jamming on Metallica songs and things like that. What are some of your go-to when you're in that practice room situation? What are some of the, the you know, the common songs that one might hear? <clears throat> well, um, the ones that I always do, I mean, just to get warmed up, I, uh, I normally start with stuff on master, like I'll play battery or I'll play sometimes if I want to get kind of loosened up and not play something super, super fast, I'll play like the bridge solo on master of puppets nice. or, uh, I mean that whole record to me is perfect. And I know that's kind of an overplayed statement. Like everybody always says how that's the masterpiece, but I mean, tell me a song on master of puppets that isn't a ripper. That's not like a, an amazing song. Like it's, it is a masterpiece and I'm not to take away from anything else they've ever done, but I just feel like not only master of puppets, but the other metal records that came out in 1986, like oh, 86. Yeah. I mean, that's rain and blood peace cells. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I, in 86, I was, you know, eight years old. So I wasn't quite dialed into everything that was happening, but Oh my God. I mean, to, to be like, say you're like 15, 16 years old at that time period and you're into that scene, it's like Christmas every day. It's, it's insane, man, yeah, the amount I, of good records that came out. Yeah, I've uh, I've contemplated uh, 86 quite a bit, and it's right around, it was 86, 87 was uh, right around the time I got into metal. So that was, yeah, those records were coming out or were new. And it, yeah, certainly when you look at the big four, I mean, you know, Among the Living was the following year. Uh, but right, you know, close to that. But yeah, Master of Puppets, Peace Cells, Rain and Blood, those were all 86. And then you had like uh, Pleasure to Kill from Creator, Darkness Descends, which was my favorite Dark Angel record. Um, the first Candlemas album, the first Ultimate Jetsam album, uh, King Diamond, Fatal Portrait. Um, you know, and even, uh, you know, bands that were veterans at that point where it's kind of, I don't know, awkward stages in their career for some fans. But I personally love Somewhere in Time. I think it's a oh, great yeah. Maiden record. And, you know, Ultimate Sin was the Aussie record that year. And that was, uh, you know, but yeah, man. I mean, there was a good Destruction album that year. And then and then if you look, yeah, what was happening in Hard Rock, that was also like Van Hagar 5150 and uh, the first Poison record and, you know, David Lee Roth solo album. And, uh, you know, so all this kind of corny stuff was happening. And then at the same time, you know, I, I think uh, I think that's the year that uh, Priest put out Turbo. <laughs> you know, so it's like, uh, you know, there, yeah, there's some wackiness going on. And then that sort of thrash, more aggressive movement was really hitting its stride and really getting some, like you said, masterpieces from from some of those classic bands. You know, records that if you go to a Slayer show now or certainly a Metallica show, you're going to hear a lot from Rain and Blood and a lot from Master of Puppets. And you're, and you're never going to go to a Megadeth show where you're not hearing the title track from Peace Cells and oh, yeah. probably Wake Up Dead. Um, yeah, that's all, all stuff from 86. Well, and I'll tell you, the cool thing about the years, like my friends and I, we used to refer to things in a couple of different ways. We'd refer to things as, you know, pre or post Back to the Future. <laughs> nice. so if it was it was like pre-85 or post-85 and then we also started doing pre or post black album for anything that we were talking about brilliant but i have i have a touch of synesthesia where i kind of associate colors with things uh-huh 
And whenever someone like I'll meet someone like what year were you born? 86. Automatically, I see red because of Master of Puppets. Nice. Yeah. And And if someone says I was born in 84, I see blue because of Ride the Lightning. And it it blows my mind that it's it's that ingrained in my psyche that the colors come up when I hear those years. You know, you know, what's crazy about the colors for that year is not only is red Master of Puppets, but the Peace Sells album cover is very red. Yeah, they both have red skies. The Pleasure to Kill is very red. Um, Ultimate Sin is very red. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. You know, Fatal Portrait is kind of, is you know has those flames and there's kind of some red in those flames. You know what the uh, uh, Sepultura Morbid Visions was that year, and that's a very red <laughs> cover. So I think you're onto something. <laughs> yeah, right. I just I tell you, man. I listen to all their records, even like the newer stuff. I like I'm listening to Hardwired a lot right now in preparation to talk to you, but. I listen to Hardwired all the time still. I, there's just, I mean, it, that, you know, when you talk about uh, name a record, you know, name a song on a record that isn't a ripper, I think Hardwired is a record where every single song is um, is, is excellent. Well, yeah. I tell you, I love the record, but I remember the first time I listened to it, I loved it. I was into it. But when I heard Spit Out the Bone, I was like, oh, my God, they're back. Right. I remember having that conversation with a friend of mine when Death Magnetic came out and uh, talking about, uh, all nightmare long. Oh yeah. And when it gets to that hunt you down without mercy part, you're just like, yeah, dude. <laughs> well, and, and what I was going to say is th- I, I was thinking of something that I wanted to run by you and get your take on. Yeah. So I got into Metallica on justice, pretty much master. I came late to the party on master, but that was the first thing I heard. You yeah. came to the party around justice, whatever we've set with this band for so many years and analyzed it, and they've become like what like we said, like folklore. Sure. They're, and, and, they're, and, by, and by the way, what's strange from my entry point is that the current release was gar- the Garage Days EP. <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's even better. So man. yeah, I came into the band. Uh, you know, Jason Newstead was the bass player. He was still he was still new kid, and uh, yeah, that that EP had just come out. So anyway, yeah. Can you can you imagine like what kind of task it is to choose a set list because there are kids that are getting into metallica right now that have only heard hardwired i mean if you were born when load was released you are 22 years old now <laughs> yeah that's that's what i'm saying so people that are always yeah. like I, re- I, I watch a lot of the videos and whatnot with, like, the fan club guys talking to them. And people, why aren't you guys going to play this? Why aren't you going to play this? It's like, man, they've got this amount of time. They have to cater to so many. I mean, there's got to be some at some shows three generations of people at the show. Yeah, and think about a band like Iron Maiden, who goes back even further, who's put oh, yeah. a lot more studio records, um, who's had different eras, different singers. And all of their songs almost exclusively are super long. And so you yeah. get people that, you know, there's a couple tours where they're like, we're going to do the entire new record. And people are like, no. But then <laughs> if you turn that around and you're in Iron Maiden, um, you know, you don't want to just go out and do the. I mean, there's that push and pull of like, and Metallica, you know, has pulled that off so well because their set list the last couple of years has had a lot of hardwired in it. And yet... Isn't, I think it, it works though with what else they're playing. Like it, yeah, they choose it, things it, it very carefully. It isn't lacking for the stuff that you really want. You know, you're still getting "Sad but True." You're still getting "Master of Puppets." You're still getting "Creeping Death" for whom the bell tolls. You know, th- those staples are still in there. And like you said, yeah, it really works. Whereas there were some periods in the '90s, um, the only injustice for all you were getting besides one uh, was in the medleys. Yeah, you know, yeah. There, there was a time where they were doing the Kill Ride medleys. I remember actually one of those Deer Creek shows. Uh, it might have been that Jerry Cantrell Days of the New Tour uh, where they did an acoustic set as part of the encore and they did like Four Horsemen acoustic. And it's like, well, that's <laughs> that's the way that it makes sense, though, sitting next to, uh, you know, Outlaw Torn or, or Mama Said or, like, you know, stuff from that era. So. Yeah, what, you're right. What, it does. what tour was it? Do you remember what tour it was when they had like, it was an indoor tour. They had like the guy that acted like he fell off of the stage. Yeah, like the, the, the tour that uh, ended up on Cunning Stunts. Yeah, and then they they would play the acoustic thing, and they had all the lights in the in the, yeah. in the place on. I I was trying to remember what tour that was because that was I went to that tour as well, and I always 
I always really like when Metallica does an acoustic thing because it just when you can strip songs down to that and they're still good songs, I think it really proves how great the songs really are. Yeah, for sure. And I want to say that tour that you're talking about was like 97. I know that DVD came out in 98, so it would have been around I just, there. Um, I yeah. remember that DVD. You could change the camera angles. It was so high tech <laughs> yeah. back in the day. And every time uh, they do one of those bridge school benefits, I mean, yeah, to your point, um, you know, one of the gosh, which song is it? All Within My Hands actually becomes a really great Metallica song in the acoustic setting at the Bridge School Benefits, uh, a song that I couldn't get through on San Anger, uh, but I listen to that acoustic version often. And that's a place, too, where they try out a lot of, you know, whether it's Nazareth or uh, obviously Blue Oyster Cult. Um, but, yeah, they've tried out a lot of things in the that setup that they wouldn't otherwise attempt. Tuesday's Gone, you know, a lot of that stuff is really cool. I always liked that Tuesday is Gone with, I think, what John Popper played on it or Jerry Cantrell. But, think, both of them. Yeah. Pepper, yeah. Pepper Keenan's on that, too. Um, I don't know if uh, – have you ever checked out a couple years ago, James did some acoustic stuff just by himself. Um, I saw something. Didn't he play in his daughter sang or something? Yeah, or his, da- his daughter did a song with him. And, uh, yeah, just really cool. I mean, dude, Brothers in Arms, when they do that acoustic, there's – yeah, their acoustic side is really uh, unheralded, I think, amongst the masses of the Metallica faithful. I don't think they get enough credit for that. I think part of it is probably because they never did, like, a proper MTV Unplugged. Like, Yeah, they never years. did. And they totally could. I mean, it would be for amazing sure. if they did it, yeah. Wait, I, I have a question for you. I, 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 have, I have a favorite cover song that they've done. I want to know what your favorite cover song is, and I'll tell you mine. Ooh. Um... Man, there are so many, obviously. And this can be unofficial, like in a sound check sure. or anything, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, there's a few minutes of them playing Oasis to make fun of Lars. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, you know, I don't know if you ever watched on YouTube, there's a great video. It's on the Speak and Destroy YouTube channel in the playlist, actually, uh, where it was a Castle Donington show, and they did short versions of, like, songs from every other band that was playing. So there was, like, Skid Row and Slayer and... <laughs> You know, um, and it's just, you know, it's them drinking beer and having a laugh uh, with their buddies. Uh, but it's really funny. Um, they could do kind of a whole medley of the rest of the bill. Um, gosh, you know, there's a lot of covers that they do, like Killing Joke. The, and uh, you know, there's, there's there's songs that they really make their own, you know. I mean, well, my, my, mine, mine is an official cover. And I think you might agree with me. I just... Every time I hear it, its production is so raw. It's got so much energy. Bread Fan is one of my favorite songs they've ever done. Yeah, and you know what? That That's in that category for sure where it just it really becomes a Metallica song. That's were. the thing because the Budgie version is great. I mean, the original version by Budgie is awesome. Yeah, but it's very but different. When I listen, like I had this kid that I'm teaching because I teach guitar, and he said, I want to play something like really, really – fast and energetic and he, and he loves metal I'm like have you ever heard this and i played bread fan for him and now it's his favorite song he'd never heard it and that song just jumps out of the speakers man and i love the production is so raw and i can listen to their rehearsal uh for the motorhead show that they did for lemmy's 50th birthday where they dressed oh, yeah. up as the lemmy's i can listen to that rehearsal over and over and over um those four songs and i want to say there's a fifth and sixth song that didn't make it out officially that are out there unofficially uh, from the motorhead stuff but you know to answer your question um you know whiskey in the jar is a big one for me uh great song i'm irish uh (laughs) but i but i gotta say if i had to pick one i would go with the merciful fate medley because they really took the best moments of those merciful fate songs and put them together in such an interesting way and you know and kirk's solos are quite a bit different from what's in there he really put his own stamp on it and for james to figure out how am i going to handle these king diamond vocals as james hetfield um, yeah and some of the the harmonies and layering and stuff that he did to kind of um interpret what king diamond does in his own way because they're you know king diamond's gotten up and done uh, at those anniversary shows and and back around like 2008 in dallas you know, he's, he sang the Merciful Fate medley with them, and it's cool. It sounds like King Diamond singing Merciful Fate, which is 
what you know it's the real deal but uh but yeah i really love the approach that they took to putting that together and it's you know 12 minutes of satan as james likes to say live. <laughs> um but yeah it's really really cool now i i seem to remember you might were you at you said you were at the danzig suicidal tendencies tour right i was yeah now my friend that was with me tells me this all the time, and I don't really remember it. I don't know if I was in the bathroom or if it never really happened, but he said that Glenn got up and did London Dungeon in Last Caress with Metallica. I don't remember that from the show that we were at, but I know that that happened on that tour, I believe, in Chicago. Okay. I think it was the last night of the tour. There's so, oh, some pictures on the Metallica website. They, have such a, they do such a great job of uh, – you know, you can go through like their historical archive and click on different shows and see set lists and sometimes photos. And there's some great pictures um, of Danzig doing Misfit songs with them there. But I don't, I don't remember that from our show that we went to. Because my friend swears up and down, and I'm like, dude, I think you're crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it's not to say that it didn't happen, but yeah, it could be a Mandela effect where he knows he yeah. knows that that happened somewhere else on that tour, and in his mind, it yeah. just became he saw it firsthand. Hey, do you, do you ever think that you were destined to do this podcast because your last name is where James grew up? <laughs> no, but I remember how psyched I got in the uh, <laughs> watching the VH1 behind the music for the first time, and they show the shot of Downey High School, and I'm like, whoa. Yes. <laughs> That's I've just always thought of that because, like, I've you know before we kind of connected and started talking about stuff, I was a fan of the of the podcast. And I was like, man, it's it's very convenient that his last name is Downey, and that's where James grew I mean, up. And that's only the kind of stuff that Metallica super nerds like us are going to. Oh man, <laughs> I mean, I identify you, and be psyched on. It's awesome. Did Did you ever read the Unbound biography, like that first big, but like picture biography that came out like back after the Black album came out? Uh, gosh, you know, I don't know that one specifically or not. I've I've, I've certainly read quite a few. I mean, I read that thing over the years. I read that thing probably 20 times, man, and I just – I might not be as up on all of my history right now as I used to be, but at one point, I i mean, I was obsessed <laughs> with everything, man. And like, and now I feel kind of weird too because like on Instagram, I follow Lars's kids on Instagram and I feel <laughs> really? kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. But they're really good musicians and they seem really cool and I'm like, oh, yeah. Lars's son. I mean, I just – it, it's weird to me. Well, that... you feel like you know, like you've grown up with these people, and then especially, yeah. you know, watching them, you know, yeah, raise, start families and raise children, and uh, you know, True Hillo's kid filling in with corn, and that's insane. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff like that is really cool. And yeah, and and if you go and dig up, uh, I recommend uh, that acoustic performance of James with his daughter singing because she actually she can sing. It's not just one of those. Oh, I'm gonna have my kids sing, and you're like, ooh. Um, she nails it. I think they did an Adele song and maybe something else. Well, I know like Dave Grohl just did that or something with his daughter singing. I, I just, I really hope that my kids are musically inclined. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to sing, damn it. Yeah. Um, well, dude, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I can talk Definitely. to Metallica with you. For hours and hours and hours. Um, yeah, if you're ever hard up for another guest, let me know because I got a lot more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me, I, I got a, 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 two more things I want to ask you before I let you go. One, uh, you know, you mentioned unofficial covers and versions and things like that that are out there. What's your favorite uh, hidden gem of uh, Metallica stuff that's floating around that you know hasn't hmm. made it out? Like, are you talking like rare kind of stuff? Uh, or just... Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the uh, there's all those Ramones covers that I think people haven't really. That was like the Saint Anger era. Saint Anger era. Um, there's uh, way back in the Mustaine Ron McGovney days. I think there was a Fear song, uh, "The Money Will Roll Right In," that I don't think ever came out officially. I don't know if you have anything that's from the fan I mean, cans or. I I really thoroughly enjoy just because of how punk rock it is the actual recordings from no life to leather with like with uh like hugh tanner playing the lead on hit the lights and all that stuff like i just i don't know i still i don't have a real copy you know i i do remember at one point i was looking for a copy on ebay and i found a copy and i messaged the guy and it was ron mcgovney <laughs> Yeah, Ron McGovern actually follows uh, Speaking the Story on Twitter, and we've we've had a lot of uh, 
great conversations back and forth DM wise. Uh, well, he was super nice. I told him, I was like, ah, oh, I can't really afford to buy it, but man, it's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it was cool. They did that record store day, um, cassette reissue of it. And it was like in Lars's handwriting and, you know, the way that the demo would have looked when they mailed it to you back then. And then I, I, I don't know if you followed the, this, but, um, since they started doing those collector boxes, they were planning to do one for No Life to Leather, and then it kind of fell apart over the the age-old uh, songwriting credit disputes with um, one of the guys who wrote a whole bunch of those songs. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, whether or not that'll ever come uh, remains to be seen. But, uh, but the, yeah, okay, there was I'll... that cassette version floating around out there. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, this isn't really rare. I guess this is kind of, unless you're, I mean, I know it was on one of the official releases, but when they did the anti-Nowhere League song, So What? Yeah. Now, I love that song, but I hate the anti-Nowhere League. <laughs> and, uh... I mean, I don't hate them as people. No, I got I just... Well, you know, you know who hates that band and that song is Ron McGovney. Oh, <laughs> really? I, uh, I had Animal from Anti-Nowhere League. Awesome. Lovely I've guy. heard the episode. He was awesome. Man. Yeah, I had him on, and when I posted that episode, uh, Ron messaged me and said, uh, "I hate that song." James and Lars used to play it all the time to irritate me, just to annoy me. <laughs> uh, it's an acquired taste for sure. Uh, it's interesting well, I... if, if you look at uh, the first time the video. Oh, by the way, all these videos I'm referencing, plug plug. There's a Speaking to Story YouTube channel, and I've I've curated. <laughs> I have a playlist that's. The originals of all the songs Metallica has covered, and a lot of them are like, you know, these great TV performances and music videos and, you know, obviously Diamond Head and, um, you know, all those great bands. And, uh, and then I also have a lot of versions of Metallica covering songs with guests from the bands. And there's a great, I think it's Wembley, like a early 90s Black Album era. That they had Animal up on stage to do so what. And then, of course, he came out for the anniversary shows but um yeah it's funny watching even the crowd react to like the actual guy coming out and singing that song well i tell you i'm uh henry rollins is like my hero <laughs> i've always been a big black flag guy and if you listen to to him talk or if you read the books about you know getting the van being on tour with them they always talk about the how hard it was touring over in the uk and doing these festivals with all these punk bands like the gbh and and, uh, you know, Chelsea and all these bands. And there's this one thing, this one, like, journal entry where all he does is trash the anti-Nowhere League. So I think I'm a little influenced by that, <laughs> maybe. Rollins' bias, yeah. Yeah, Rollins' bias, because in my eyes, he can do no wrong. <laughs> That's yeah. just how I feel. Oh, apparently you haven't seen Wrong Turn 2. <laughs> I have seen that, and I guess that's as close to doing wrong I kid, as I kid. done. Yeah. I yeah, kid, yeah. I kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, Animals is such a lovely guy, and, and, and those, you know, those were real deal, like, rough dudes. I mean, he was a, you know, outlaw biker um, prior to doing the band, and um, a really, really interesting life story. But uh, I just, I, I want to know what, like, the late 70s, early 80s punk bands would have sounded like if electronic tuners would have been more readily available. <laughs> Yeah, in some cases they would have lost a lot of the magic, and in other cases they would have certainly been a lot more listenable. Well, I just remember when I was a kid and I was trying to learn Misfits songs, and I'm like, what key is this in? Yeah, stuff's out of tune. And, and even, you know, I did a Misfits tribute band for a while with some friends, and uh, we'd play on Halloween and things like that. And um, we were learning those songs, like really learning them and able to perform them, realizing how much they don't make sense. We were like, oh, in this part the chorus is being sung over the verse riff. Yeah, it's or, weird, uh, you know, and in trying to like, it's this part two times, then this other part three times, and this part's only once. And um, yeah, they're a lot more, they're kind of deceptively complicated because they seem like such simple songs. Everybody they're thinks about. they're simple, but I'll tell you, at uh, this big festival at Giant Stadium out in New Jersey called Bamboozle. <clears throat> yeah, I'm familiar. The, this, yeah, this was in uh, 2008 or 2009, I can't remember. But uh, the night before the Bamboozle Festival at, you know, at Giant Stadium, they also had this thing called the Hoodwink Festival. And at Hoodwink, all these bands that were playing Bamboozle were doing covers of other bands. Like Bayside did No Effects and Anti-Flag did The Clash. And we, the Ataris, did The Misfits. And I will tell you, 
I thought I knew how to play those songs until I actually right. had to learn how to play those songs. Exactly. That's exactly it's what I'm saying, easy. too. Yeah, I yeah, thought I could sing those songs until I had to actually learn <laughs> where everything is. And in some cases, what the lyrics actually were versus what you thought they were all your life. Oh, yeah. And I just remember Chris is like, hey, we're going to do the Misfits for that festival. I'm like, oh, no problem, dude. I know, like, their whole catalog. And then when I start actually dissecting what they're doing i'm like i don't know shit i don't know any of this stuff it's fun watching danzig sing die die my darling with metallica because the version that they do isn't correct (laughs) (laughs) and you see him get a little confused on stage because they're not like you know it's not the arrangement's a little different than that's that's funny original so i mean because that ending just turns into a big train wreck yeah definitely (laughs) uh well dude uh my other question for you was uh where can people find you plug your stuff um well Currently, I am hosting a, a podcast that's growing exponentially, I will say. It's called That One Time on Tour, You're a Past Guest. I've heard of it. Yeah, and uh, you can find me doing all kinds of stuff social media-wise with that. It's at T-O-T-O-T podcast, That One Time on Tour. It's just a little acronym, T-O-T-O-T podcast. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, at SwissFTW. That's my handle on there. So just follow me and let's have a good time and talk about nice. Metallica. <laughs> and uh, what do you what are you doing musically these days? Is there anything to look out for? Um, yeah, my my all my time is taken up. Uh, I have two young children, uh, Indy and Silas. They're uh, two and a half and one year old, and um, I hang out with them quite a bit and play music. But I also teach guitar full time. And I have a music summer camp for kids called Rock and Roll Summer Camp, which takes a lot of my time. And uh, I'm writing some stuff, and I've got a couple buddies, and we're kind of putting together demos. I'm not really sure what it's going to be for. It'll probably end up getting released at some point. I'm not a very good vocalist, so I can write a song, but i got to find someone to sing it. (laughs) Fair enough. Hey, Um, you're a singer, man. Maybe we'll just get together and do a record, right? You never know. It could be be the (laughs) Skype album of the century. The Skype album of the century, yes, sir. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much for taking the time and uh, talking Metallica with me. You can find that one time on tour at toppodcast.com, Apple Music, and anywhere else you like to consume your podcasts. Please, if you're enjoying Speak and Destroy, leave a five-star rating and a nice little review because those really help. You can find more details and deep dives on our guests and all things Metallica at speakanddestroy.com, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Check out past episodes of Speak and Destroy with guests like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, Mark Morton from Lamb of God, Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm, Rob Flynn from Machine Head, Gary Holt from Exodus and Slayer, David Ellison of Megadeth, and many, many more. And check out our sister podcast, No Prize from God, featuring conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 30. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Christopher Swinney, former guitarist for gold record-selling pop-punk band The Ataris, a fellow Indiana native, and host of the excellent podcast that one time on tour collecting stories from musicians, crew members, and assorted road dogs of all stripes. Recent guests on TOTOT include Ricky Rocket from Poison, music personality Matt Pinfield, Wee Man from Jackass, and members of The Descendants, Rise Against, The Offspring, Rancid, Anti-Flag, Goldfinger, Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, Black Flag, and many more. Now, if that lineup sounds pretty punk to you, rest assured, Chris is a tried-and-true Metallica fan. He recently invited me onto his show, and I was happy to return the favor to talk all things Metallica. This is Speak and Destroy.
so yeah, tell me a little bit about your earliest exposure to music and, you know, briefly how that led into becoming a musician and where Metallica fit into that picture. Okay, well, my I had this friend that I met in kindergarten, and this is way back. Uh, his name was Joey Levinsky, and uh, his dad played in a band, and every time I would go over to his house, his dad would have the guitars out, and he would play stuff, and, and I thought that was really cool, but at the time, I mean, I was this is probably that's after I met him. So probably like, you know, middle school listening to Belle Biv DeVoe and like just stupid shit like that. And, uh, I didn't really know a lot about, you know, rock and roll music. And but my dad liked, you know, Pink Floyd and Sabbath and stuff like that, but <clears throat> he wasn't played in the house very much, you know, just whenever we'd be like in the car, he might play something and play the classic rock station. But, um, my friend's dad played guitar. So every time we'd go over there, I got, I got to see him play a little bit, and it was kind of this intriguing thing for me. And then my friend Joey's older sister had a had a boyfriend who was in high school, and we, being the stupid little shits we were, we we kind of got into his car one day and found all these tapes. And he had like an Iron Maiden tape and an Anthrax tape, and and he had uh, Ride the Lightning by Metallica. And so we ended up stealing those tapes out of his car, and went inside and listened to him and it was unlike anything I'd ever heard in my entire life. And that's kind of like what got me going on it, but I didn't get to take the tapes home. <laughs> so they just <laughs> yeah. like, they, they stayed at Joey's house. And every time I'd go over there, we'd listen to him and we thought we were like, we had this little secret, you know? And then, uh, when I got a little bit older, I'd say probably, uh, maybe I was eight or nine years old. I'm not sure when it was, but my uncle Jeff, uh, I had talked to him about it a little bit. I was super, super young and, and he thought it was cool and he was kind of a metal guy and he gave me Master of Puppets on cassette and I didn't listen to anything else. That was that was it. I mean, I don't know if right then and there Metallica was my favorite band, but I knew right away I didn't want to listen to any rap. I didn't want to listen to any country or pop. It was just all all Master of Puppets and forever. And then I realized later, you know, as you get into music and you start realizing, you know, wow, this band has more than just this one cassette tape. I I joined one of those BMG Columbia House things. And I, <laughs> nice. I, and then I got Injustice for All. And then, you know, later on, the Black Album came out. I remember having my dad take me to get the Black Album. I was super young, too. Uh, like, to get the Black Album, like, the night it came out, because they had the midnight release. Yeah. So, like, they just... They were a staple from then on, then on out. They were the band that made me care about music. They made me want to learn how to play guitar. And to this day still, my band, when I was playing in the Ataris and a couple other bands I was playing in, I would like play this game where it's like, you know, yell out a Metallica song. And if I don't know at least one riff from the song, I'll give you like 10 bucks. <laughs> nice. Now, does that still continue today if I were to yell out, you know? <laughs> Sweet, I'll tell you what, Sweet Amber from San Anger, would you, would you I, bust I always, out a riff? I always told people, San San Anger. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't spend the time. I'm not a complete hater of that record. I understand what they were trying to accomplish. I understand the time that they did it and what was going on. You know, watching some kind of monster, you kind of get a feel for, you know, the turmoil they were going through and what kind of led them to want to try something different. But I, I didn't sit with that record the way that I sat with the other records. Yeah, and I think we can appreciate it in terms of the role that it played in getting the band through that time and, you know, into the next chapter of their career. Uh, and obviously I would imagine um, if someone were to call out, uh, oh, what's a what's a good Lulu song? <laughs> <laughs> I am the yeah, table. I, yeah, I don't. Eat, I I listen to Lulu a couple of times, and as much as I am a Velvet Underground fan, like I like Lou Reed, I I just didn't get it. And and like I've heard you say on the podcast before, and I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends, that should have been an archival type of record where later on in in you know down the line when they're not really making records anymore. Oh, here's this crazy thing we did with Lou Reed. I think you're you've said it best a million times on your podcast like i just feel like that should have been one of those you know tupac records that are coming out now <laughs> yeah know? exactly yeah because I, I yeah tons of respect and understanding for how and why it happened 
but uh, I think the fact that it was presented as an official release at that particular time and, you know, and there were videos and talk shows and promo photos and the whole thing, I think it was, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe even in retrospect uh, to kind of recontextualize it now that some time has passed. It was certainly an artistic challenging kind of experiment on all you know and, and every once in a while i'm like you know what today's going to be the day that i'm going to get into lulu and it just <laughs> it's just next next to impossible <laughs> well I, I tell you what what i like about that record is not even musically it's the fact that it compounds what i tell my friends all the time whether you like it or not metallic is a punk fan oh it's a very it, it's an absolutely uh 100% punk rock maneuver the because that, they existence of that record that. I mean, for sure i mean with load and reload and everything that they've ever done you might not dig it but it doesn't fit the formula they've never made the same record twice yeah coming off of injustice for all and doing the black album was punk rock you know working with the guy that produced cinderella and bon jovi um and here you have the front man that has kill bon jovi written on the headstock of his guitar yeah you know and, and then going from the black album the biggest rock album ever <laughs> certainly of the SoundScan era into a record with uh you know where you're in suits smoking cigars on the back with semen on the cover and it's called load yeah i was pretty pumped i mean here's here's my thing too like load came out in 97 i think right uh 96 i think actually okay 96 i graduated high school in 97 so i was into metallica hardcore i always loved the old stuff but i mean i love the black album it's a classic album when i heard load i liked it because i loved alice in chains i loved all the grunge right. stuff right. so when i heard it yeah maybe it wasn't the metallica record i was expecting but i mean the house that jack bill and like all those songs on that record like it was still an amazing record, and I, I fight tooth and nail with people when I talk about Metallica because I'm like, man, Load, you know, Reload to me seemed like maybe there was a little more filler. There are some great songs, don't get me wrong, but like Load to me was a better record than Reload. But both of them together, I mean, that's that's a really really good output as far as music goes. It just might not be what everybody wanted at the time. Yeah, and I agree. Not only is there the Alice in Chains sort of vibe in there. And they were friends with those guys. You know, the way that we associate different scenes together, where whether it's the Bay Area Thrash movement or the new wave of British heavy metal or, you know, New York City hardcore, uh, you know, Bay Area punk, all those sort of neighborhoods of music are, you know, figuratively and literally are groups of people who are influenced by a lot of the same things and are sort of influenced by one another and spend time together and, and I think that that gets overlooked a bit, um, the relationship that had developed between Metallica and Alice in Chains around that time. And, and I mean, how, they even, what, Mike, Mike Inez even had don't, friends don't let friends get right. friends haircuts on his face on the unplugged. Yes. Yeah. Alice in Chains unplugged. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was, and people didn't know what that joke was because no one had seen the friends haircuts yet. Because, um, I mean, they were like sitting in the front row watching yeah. the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in later years, um, you know, when Metallica, you know, because they're always so great about putting out all these demo versions and work in, works in progress. Until It Sleeps, the working title was, uh, what was it, F-O-B-D for Fellow yeah, Black yeah. Days? Because it was like, you know, they were kind of structuring. It was not, I mean, and, and anyone who's been in a band, and you can attest to this, uh, oftentimes the working title for a song is named after another band that the song doesn't necessarily sound like at all. <laughs> totally, There's just man. kind of a, a, a whiff of it. You know, I know Throwdown had one of my favorite working titles, which was Cheryl Crowbar. And it's like, you know, it didn't sound like Cheryl Crow or Crowbar, but there was, it, it was enough for the band to identify which song they were talking about. I was uh, I was in a like a kind of a metal metal chorish band for a while called the Widow Jenkins uh, right before I was doing my stuff with the Ataris. And the way that I would write songs, it, I, for some reason, if I turned on like the History Channel or the Discovery Channel and had like a documentary going, I would sit and just write the music. But I was never like a word guy or a lyric guy. So I would start writing and I would write like an entire song while I was watching some sort of documentary. And then I would title the demo something to do with the documentary and then that would influence our singer adam when he would write the words to the song so we had a song called like battlefield and we had a song called sidonia because i was watching this thing about mars and sidonia is a place on mars and 
it really worked. I mean, I know what you're saying. You're saying like the influences, if you write a song that sounds kind of like another band song, but for me, like I would actually title it something that had nothing to do with anything. And then that would influence the lyrics later on with someone else that would write it. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, getting back to the load conversation, uh, which people that listen to the podcast that might be sick of hearing the, the praise of Lode. <laughs> we'll get into some other Metallica stuff here in a second. But um, I think for me personally, what threw me for a loop was, uh, you know, Ain't My Bitch has, it's my least favorite song on Load. And that's I would this, say that's my least favorite song on that record as well, yeah. And it's the song that opens it. So that was kind of challenging to get past because it sort of set the tone of like, oh, I don't know about this. Whereas, um, you know, within the intervening, even just a couple of years, um, I mean, I've said this many times, but the Outlaw Torn and Bleeding Me are top Metallica songs for me, like, you know, somewhere in the echelon. Those are probably in in my top 10 or 15, I would say. And I mean, those are songs that to this day... I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that I listen to load and reload all the time. I still listen to justice and I still listen to master all the time. And I still listen to kill. I mean, I listen to the first four records probably on a weekly basis still, but when I hear bleeding me or I hear outlaw torn, those songs, those are classic Metallica songs. Like those are, they're great songs. I love them. I feel like the band's relationship to those songs is really similar because there was uh when they did the 30th anniversary shows, you know, if you go back and listen to the live recordings they put out from those um, after they play Bleeding Me, you know, James has kind of a moment of like, oh, I love I love that song, you know, and he's like, it, it meant something then and it means something different now. And it's, you know, kind of had this, you, you could hear in his voice that he's kind of like, we should play that some more. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, have, I have a similar relationship to those records and those per- that, that period in that. Um, I'm not necessarily revisiting it as often, but uh, but it definitely still emerges in my rotation. So yeah, so let's go back and talk about, um, you know, certainly your your kind of uh, most notable uh, association band wise is the Ataris, who of course was yeah a pop punk band that had you know a gold record at one point and um, did the thing you know uh, with MTV and Warp Tour and all that stuff. Um, I found that there are a lot of people in that scene i mean across a lot of different musical genres certainly but in particular with punk and hardcore bands who are metal guys you know who uh who metallica might have been their their entryway or their gateway and then they end up in these punk bands and yet there's that um kind of heartbeat or dna of of metal that's in there did you did you find that to be a pretty common experience yourself when you're once you're out there touring in that circuit yeah, totally, man. I was kind of, I was just on my, <clears throat> we haven't talked about it yet, but I was a podcast as well. And I had Eddie Reyes, who's a friend of mine who was in the band Take You Back Sunday. And <clears throat> we were talking about when we first met on Warp Tour back in 2003, we met because he invited me to watch some kind of monster on their bus. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And I mean, and those guys are not even really a punk band, really. I mean, they're, sure. they're more of <clears throat> like a rock kind of slash emo, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, I found that it was really weird. Chris Rowe, the singer of the Ataris, and I, we bonded over our love <clears throat> of Metallica. We used to sit and, you know, I had a recording studio here in Indiana where I live, and uh, we were doing demos, and Chris would come over. And before we ever started doing the demos, we would just sit there and rock out Metallica songs. Amazing. Yeah. And what I found out also, this kind of it's kind of weird, when when I joined the Ataris, there was some backlash from fans because – I'm, you know, heavily tattooed. I've got a beard, a shaved head. I don't look like the nicest guy in the world. I look maybe a little mean. <laughs> and a lot of the fans were like, why is this metal guy joining the Ataris? <laughs> and and I felt like, yeah, okay, I love metal and that's fine. But I also grew up on fat records. Like I, my whole thing was when I started playing guitar, it was because of Metallica. And then through metallica which is kind of weird i found the misfits oh sure that's not weird at all i think that's well i mean yeah uh, you know because you know cliff had the shirt on all the time and i didn't even know what it was so i just went to the record store and saw the crimson ghost and bought the cd and i i love the misfits and i got into that and then like through 
you know, liking the misfits and doing research, I found black flag. And, and so I found a lot of the kind of eighties, hardcore-ish punk stuff first, but then I got into no effects and the offspring and green day and lag wagon and strung out and all these bands. And a lot of the bands on fat records, the reason it spoke to me, they were punk bands, but they had that metal thing going on. Yeah. Like if you listen to strung out, when I show my metal friends strung out, they say, oh, they're too punk rock. And when I show my punk rock friends strung out, they say they're too metal. <laughs> right. I remember, uh, you know, around the time of Black Sails and the Sunset having similar conversations about AFI where punk oh, yeah. were like, oh, this is like, this is like heavy metal. Listen to this guy's voice and listen, you know, and this has like a hardcore breakdown. And then you play it for, you know, <laughs> hardcore metal dudes. And they're like, this is pop punk. This is on Nitro Records. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like my first band in high school that I started, we were this band called Chronic Chaos. Uh, you, you, you've told me that you thought you remember the name since we're folk, both from the same area. Yeah. But the thing that we always had was <clears throat> we would play metal shows and we would also play punk shows. But it was it was cool that we could do that kind of crossover. But people didn't really dig it because all the punk kids thought we were too metal and all the metal kids thought we were too punk. So we actually started putting that on the flyers. We would put like chronic chaos in parentheses, too punk for the metal kids, too metal for the punk kids. And then it became kind of a joke. Oh, that's great. I remember I used to have that conversation with the guys from Zayo, uh, you know, gosh, I guess uh, 20 years ago now. Um, yeah, they were a band that was uh, too Christian for, you know, not Christian enough for the Christian kids and too Christian for everybody else. Um, yeah, I think I think that's a common thing in that scene. Like a, if you're not, yeah. and that's a common thing with being great a minister bands, on the usually. stage and preaching, yeah. then then the the Christian kids are going to get mad at you. You know, well, I think I think it's a common thing with uh, with a lot of great artists and a lot of great art is that they they uh, might be rooted or have a foundation in a particular genre or philosophy or lifestyle and yet are pushing the envelope of what's expected in every direction of everything they're involved in, which, you know, brings us back to Metallica because that's what's great about Metallica as a quintessential thrash band who was one of the first to kind of evolve beyond the banner only to kind of come back and find it again. But to go through all these periods where, um, you know, they've had elements of, of so many different things and have always kind of challenged the idea of being put in a box and have always just sort of pushed forward you know it's interesting i was just watching um i don't know if you watched uh, metallica posted this 90 minute um and justice for all conversation with david frick from rolling stone um it's up on the metallica youtube channel and it's uh you know all four guys uh and david frick just kind of talking about the record and he wrote about metallica in rolling stone and, and spent some a good amount of time with them in that era and it's interesting you know lars being the chief historian in the band and the guy who who has all of the artifacts and you know knows uh every date of every show that was played and set lists and all that sort of stuff sort of the the gatekeeper of all that the the mastermind if you will he was the one who was the most averse to contextualizing justice or any other record in any sort of sweeping broad way of like oh this is you know this was a reaction to this and this is when we did this and this was in response to that he was in talking about it he was like you know at the time you know these decisions that ended up getting made that resulted in a certain thing it was just us pushing forward at the time we were just doing what we do and we into us and justice for all was the natural extension of master of puppets and the black album was the natural sort of uh streamline continue you know they were out playing for two years going Wow, if we have eleven minute songs, we can only play so many songs. <laughs> uh, maybe if we had shorter songs, you know, it. Uh, it's just interesting to to think about um, how these things get sort of canonized and mythologized in retrospect by the fans and by critics and everything, versus when you're in the middle of it and you're living it, like what it's uh, what it actually is. You know what I mean? It, it's yeah. I'm sure I mean, for the fan, example, fans blow fans blow stuff up out of proportion all the time. I mean, I, I just, I mean, when I was young, just the whole thing with, you know, my, the first beer I ever drank was Coors Light because James drank Coors Light. It's <laughs> like this, the yeah. thing Metallica does. The first alcoholic hard liquor I ever had was Jägermeister because James drank Jägermeister. It was, 
I understand what you're saying, but it's like when these guys are these larger than life people and they're almost, I mean, I worshiped them when I was young. So the fact that, you know, maybe that stuff, we were just doing what we were doing, but to somebody who felt like me, you kind of dissect every little thing they do and it becomes this like folklore about Metallica. Yeah. You make a podcast about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) He's an adult. Yeah, and I would imagine, um, you know, having been a professional touring musician, uh, that you encountered a lot of the same challenges uh, on a smaller scale, of course. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, you know, for every time Metallica was like, we're not just a thrash band. I'm sure there was a lot of growing pains with the Ataris that were like, we're not a punk band. You know, people all, people all the time that just that whole pop punk moniker – I mean, yeah, the songs were about girls, but there was a lot of extra stuff going on there. I always just thought of us more as, like, we fit in more with the Foo Fighters than we do with Blink-182, you know? Right. And, I, you know, what's interesting, too, is I remember uh, doing an interview with Chris uh, probably around 2005 for uh, AP's Most Anticipated Albums issue. And he was telling me at the time that the next Atari's record um, that he had added like a cello player and a violin player. And he was really into shoegaze and oh, yeah. the record was going to sound like uh, slow dive meets the cure. And, uh, you know, and it, it's sort of that moment in a band's career that I think a lot of bands go through. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it an identity crisis so much as I would say it's uh, pushing boundaries and kind of trying to butt up against the box that, fans or even you know your own impulses have have put you in um and a lot of times you see like like a band with metallica that that all sort of comes back to center eventually and you get comfortable with your legacy and uh, you know the bands that survive um and find a way to you know i would say hardwired for example by bringing back those vocal harmonies you know they found a way to uh, you know it's death magnetic plus the black album Plus the classic, you know, it's like you can hear little yeah. shades of of all of it in their in their newer output, and I think that's kind of the really exciting thing to see uh, veteran bands do is when they can harness something that's recognizable and pure about the spirit of their band without sacrificing their own commitment to continuing to evolve. Well, and I'll tell you, like I totally draw a parallel with that because in the Ataris. I joined shortly after that shoegazy, you know, insane record you were talking about came out. And Chris was in that whole, you know, oh, I I love Radiohead. I love this. I love that. And that record, you know, there's great songs on that record. I love that record, but that record didn't sell. And we think it was because, you know, the Ataris, all the people that there was, let me see four almost five years between the big record and that record Mm. and the people that bought the first record that were probably fairly young maybe high school age college age whatever you know by the time the next record comes out they have kids their lives have changed maybe they're going to go buy the new ataris record but if they buy it and they hear this band that sounds nothing like the ataris they're probably not going to dig it yeah so so when i joined the band i was you know, like we've talked about it, I was this kind of metal-influenced, Fat Records-influenced kind of guy, and Chris and I started jamming covers and having fun and talking about punk rock, and I remember the first show, we were driving to the first show that I was playing with them, and we were listening to Propagandi, and and Chris, like, he actually told me a while later, because some of the stuff that's come out since then, like, there hasn't been a proper record come out, because... Yeah, that was the just... last full-length album, right? Yeah, I mean, there's been peppered singles here and there and an EP and whatnot, but the stuff that we wrote together, the stuff that we did demos at my studio, like, it was way more Atari's-esque. Like, we always told people in interviews that the new stuff that's getting ready to come out or the stuff that's coming out is kind of that missing link that should have probably come out right after So Long Astoria, and that's kind of how I feel about Hardwired. Even some of the Death Magnetic stuff, like... I feel like it's if you take away Load and Reload and St. Anger and all that stuff and put it back-to-back with the Black Album, it almost sounds like a natural progression. Then those other albums were just kind of art albums. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I could see that. So uh, what was your first 
encounter with the band live? What was your first Metallica show? My dad took me to see Metallica on the Justice Tour with the Cult opening up at uh, up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Nice. And they had, you know, <clears throat> the Doris on stage, like the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it blew me away. And I just, I remember, uh, I remember I smelled marijuana for the first time at that concert. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say smoke. I said smell because the yeah. guy right next to us was smoking it. But uh, yeah, my dad, like I said, he was, he was into Sabbath. He was into Zeppelin, like the stuff that you're into when you're a dad, you know? Sure. And, and uh, so he liked Metallica, what he would, what he had heard. And um, he took me cause he was a cool guy. Like my dad for my, you know, graduation bought me a Mesa boogie triple rectifier because Metallica had one. Oh, he wow. said, nice. he said, my son is not going to have crappy equipment. He's going to have the best. And then he's going to have to work to get there, but he's going to make, I'm going to make sure he has the best equipment. So, I mean, it was, life-changing going to see them because I was explaining stuff to my dad because my dad was asking, what's that guy do? And it was like the sound guy, like, what's that guy do? Sure. And, and it was, it was a really cool bonding thing with me and my dad. And I have now since, you know, I'm 40 year old, 40, 40 year old now, 40 years old. Sorry. I'm having a hard time talking. And I've seen Metallica 16 times. Oh, wow. Nice. I don't know if that's a lot or a little. I've, I've I heard feel like, people's... I feel like it's a lot. I mean, of course there's, you know, I've seen them 264 times or whatever, but I mean, yeah. 16 seems like a lot for any one particular. I mean, if you were to tell somebody you've watched Pulp Fiction 16 times, you know, that would <laughs> qualify a as a lot, you know. <laughs> but I just remember that first time it, it was it was life changing and it could have maybe been any band. If I would have gone and seen any band, it would have been life changing. But I just remember like that summer, like I saw Metallica and then my dad took me to see uh, Skid Row and Soundgarden was opening up for Skid Row. And then I went back and saw Skid Row again and Pantera was opening for Skid Row that same summer. And it was just like that, that year of my life, which I guess was probably 89, maybe. Is that when the Justice Tour was? Yeah, it would have been then. Because I, I, my first show was 88 and it was uh, the Monsters of Rock Tour and they were playing Harvester of Sorrow live for the first time, but the record wasn't actually out yet i think the record came out in august of 88 and i think that tour was that summer um and yeah my friend and i went to see only metallica stood with our middle fingers in the air for kingdom come and then left when metallica was over <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't stay for doc and the scorpions and van halen with sammy hagar which and red you know if that concert were tomorrow um i'd be into watching the scorpions and, and definitely van halen yeah but, yeah, but at the time it was just like you know I don't care about these poser bands. Um, yeah, I I always liked that allegiance by the fans from Metallica too. Like, I remember you know watching Cliff them all and and all these different things and people like I remember James telling in an interview like people would just stand with their backs to the other bands with their middle fingers up in the air. Like, yeah, I just always love the fact that if you liked not even like Metallica, if you were kind of in that community. Like it was a family type community and everybody else better stay the fuck away. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure.